All right, let's begin now, if you would, by bowing our heads and asking the Lord's blessing on our time together here this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we come before your presence praying that your word this morning would have free course in our midst and that your spirit would open the eyes of our understanding that we might know what today's passage of the scripture, a very relevant, profound, important passage of scripture, what it has to teach us and its relevance to our living in such a way that we would truly live to glorify you. May we learn the things today that will help us to respond to your word as we should. Give us a humble dependence upon you. May we be willing to receive the things that you have to teach and not turn from them in unbelief or skepticism. Keep our feet, Father, in your ways always and turn away our eyes from beholding the vanity of this world. And may we love you, Father, as we should and may you grant to each of us the growth that comes as we behold you in the word and as we yield ourselves to your providential transformation process of making us more like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The Lord had begun his final sermon, you remember, with words and promises intended to comfort his distraught disciples. Now, when you think back, do you remember why they were so distraught? Well, it was because of a number of predictions the Lord had given to them. Bing, 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 right in a row. One was that uh, one from their very own ranks, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And then another of them, in fact, their leader, Peter, was going to deny him three times before the next morning, the next cock crowed. And he went on to say that all of them, every single one of them, would scatter from him. And that made them very distraught. But even more than those predictions was the fact that he had announced he was leaving them, and where he was going, they could not follow him, at least yet. So they were very, very troubled in their hearts. And he had spent an entire chapter. What chapter is the comfort chapter of the Bible? John 14. He had spent an entire chapter giving them one comforting promise after another. I think we said there were 10, the 10 comforts of John 14. And now in our study, we have moved into the instructional part of his farewell discourse, which is chapters 15 and 16. And we come to the last section of this last discourse, which is John 16, verses 16 to 33. And we find in this section that the Lord gave his men the greatest comfort of all comforts. He told them that their sorrow would only be temporary. Isn't that the greatest comfort there is? When you're standing at a graveside of your deceased loved one, In the Lord, what is the greatest comfort that anyone can share with you and that you can have in your heart? To know that your separation is only temporary, that your sorrow is only for a little while. That's what he talks about in this section. 
In other words, all the grief that their troubled hearts were experiencing, all the heartache, all the sorrow, all the perplexed desperation over the seeming tragic situation predicted to them by the Lord was soon to be over in a little while. So let's look at the Lord's comforting words to his men in verses 16 to 22. First of all, I've got a three-part outline. First of all, we're going to look at transformed joy. Then we're going to be looking at transcendent joy. And finally, triumphant joy. That's why this is called, oh boy, coming joy. It's all about joy. So let's look at verses 16 to 22. Jesus says in 1616, a little while and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while and ye shall see me. Because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while and ye shall not see me, and again a little while and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father? They said, therefore, What is this that he saith? A little while. We cannot tell what he saith. They're saying this among themselves. He's probably up in front of them, and they're whispering, we don't get it. And Jesus, of course, verse 19, knew that they were desirous to ask him. He knew what they were thinking and asking. And so he said unto them, do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said? A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me. Verily, verily, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament But the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful. But, and here's the important part. If you have a highlighter, a pink, green, orange, yellow, highlight this. But your sorrow shall be turned to joy. Aren't those good words? For them and for us, our sorrow will be turned to joy. And then he goes on to give an example of how this works. A woman, when she is in travail, that means childbirth, labor pains, hath sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. I don't know about you, but I was even joyful when women were born into the world. Of <laughs> two daughters. And verse 22, and ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. Should that not have brought joy into the disciples' hearts? Oh, good. We're going to see you again. He promises, just like he did back in chapter 14, verse 3, when he said, you know, I'm going away to prepare a place for you, but I will come again. He says here, I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice And I love this, and your joy no man taketh from you. All right, this is transformed joy. Do you know what the greatest relief for sorrow in this life is? It is having the confident knowledge of a far, far better future, of endless joy and peace in another world. Isn't that what our faith is all about? This is not all there is. Aren't you so glad for that? That this is not all there is? That there is a far better future awaiting us who know Christ in heaven where everything will be perfect forever. Every tear ever shed will 
be wiped away permanently? We won't have to turn on the news and hear all the distressing things that go on. There won't be any Osama bin Ladens in heaven. Praise the Lord. Yes. When all of the circumstances of life are boiled down, when you get to the very bottom, we find, really, that the only comfort we have in this present life is our faith in the sovereignty of God and our Christian-based knowledge of the truth of his word regarding the coming joy that awaits us in heaven. And when it's all boiled down, I mean, you know, that's it. When you're having a pity party, when something's going wrong in your, in your life, and you remember that everything takes place under the sovereign control of God. You know, he knows how many hairs you presently have on your head. And if one falls into your pew during the course of this hour, he, he knows the new number. He knows when every time a spa- I hit a sparrow the other day, and I hate that when that happens, but I thought, Lord, you knew that. That was no accident. You know the word accident doesn't exist when you understand and believe in the sovereignty of God. There are no accidents. There is no such word as good luck or bad luck. No such thing as luck. No such thing as coincidence. Everything, everything is orchestrated by God. Did he know that Osama would be killed last week? Yes. Did he put Osama in the position he's in? He allowed it, yes. He's allowed everything. Everything comes under his sovereign will. Everything in your life is orchestrated by him. And it is all for the ultimate end of his own glory. He has a plan. He has a purpose. Yes, even the tornadoes that hit. All in his sovereign plan to bring himself glory. We can't always understand everything from this side of heaven, but he is sovereign. He is in control. And ultimately, it is all for our own good. If we love him, he is conforming us into his image, his son's image, and it is all for his ultimate glory. Well, and remember that. And because this is the apex of all of our sure hope, it is what we do find in the final section of the Lord's final sermon given to his followers, his beloved little children. It was, um, and what he's telling them is that soon their sorrow, all their, the trouble their hearts was, were feeling, all of that was going to be turned to joy because his departure from them was only going to be temporary. That's where you and I are today. Got good news for you. Our separation from our Lord and from our God and from our loved ones who are who have gone on before us, that separation is only temporary. From God's perspective, what is it? A little while. Just a little while. I mean, in light of eternity, it is just like just like a drop in a bucket. Now, actually, if the disciples had been previously carefully listening to Jesus' words with unbiased hearts, all the words he had been telling them for the past three years, and if they had been listening with spiritually attuned ears, they already could have had joy and peace in their hearts and souls. They could have known genuine comfort and inner joy in spite of the Lord's sad predictions. 
Same thing with us. We can have peace and joy even though we know this world is getting darker and darker and we're leading up into the time of the tribulation. We can have greater joy because we know that means that soon he will be here and we'll be out of this mess. And that the joy we'll have in heaven, no man will ever be able to take from us. But they could have had this kind of joy already because he's revealed to them many things that easily could have turned their hearts from the sorrow they were presently experiencing because he had given them the divine remedy for troubled hearts. Isn't that how he started out this sermon? Let not your hearts be troubled. He had promised them their heavenly eternal future with him. He had told them, he had assured them that his departure and everything he would be doing during his time of separation from them would be with the purpose of preparing a place for them and preparing them for that place. You see, that's what life is all about. He's preparing us for that place in heaven. We wouldn't really appreciate heaven without knowing what it's like not living in heaven, would we? So he's preparing us for that place. And then he also assured them that when everything was ready, he would personally come to escort them to their new eternal dwelling place. And then there was the additional promise that there will never be another separation from him for all of eternity. He said, where I am, there will you be also. And the Lord continued after, remember, two interruptions, one from Thomas and then another one from Philip. He continued to give them four additional promises. I won't take the time to go over what they were, but they all centered on the coming of the parakletos, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, who would live where? He would live within them and activate all the promises and enable them to do even greater works than Christ himself had done on earth. All these promises and more from the lips of one who never lied should have made the disciples joyful with anticipation of all that they would be able to accomplish and do for the Lord once he did depart and sent them the Holy Spirit. They should have thought, okay, hurry up, go, Lord, so we can do these greater works for you and glorify you and consequently glorify your Father. And if they couldn't have been so excited about that, you know, if they, if they hadn't been so self-absorbed, I should say, or self-focused, they, they should have been excited for him. I mean, he was anticipating returning to his home, wasn't he? He was anticipating receiving the glory that he had had with his father before he came to earth. He was, he was excited to um, leave this world where he had been so misunderstood and rejected and hated. And so if they couldn't have been joyful for themselves, they should at least have been joyful for him, shouldn't they? We had talked about that. They should have said, oh, Lord, that must be so exciting. You're going to go back to your father and sit at his right hand and all that sort of stuff. But, but they weren't. They weren't joyful, were they? They were still self-focused and they were still full of troubled, sad hearts, had sad, troubled, despairing hearts. The Lord, remember when we were discussing the vine and the branches, he had said in John 15, 11, that he had shared all those things with them so that his joy, his joy, his joy was such a joy that he could have joy even knowing he was going to a cross. How'd you like that kind of joy? Knowing you were going to die within the next few hours on a cross, be crucified, horrible. 
But he said that he had told them all these things so that his joy might remain in them. Remain. Not just be there a little bit and then go. Remain. Remain. You know, we can have constant joy, even in bad circumstances, because we know the end, right? That he, he knew he had joy, the joy that was set before him, even in the midst of all of his tr- troubles, because he knew what was before him. And he's told us what's before us, so even in trials, we should have joy, because heaven awaits us. Anyway, he told them all these things so that his joy might remain in them, and their joy might be what? Full. Exactly. However, as we come to the end of this discourse now, we find that there is still little but sorrow filling the hearts of his men. All these things he had told them bounced off of them, like water off a duck's back. It just didn't get absorbed. And so he returns to comforting them. He gives them the most comforting truth that there is for a believer. And it's essentially the same one that he began with. He says, a little while and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while and ye shall see me because I go to the Father. He's telling them that, yes, I'm leaving, but it's only going to be temporary. Now, we happen to know by way of the questions that these men ask among themselves in verses 17 and 18, that they also did not get this comforting promise, the greatest comforting promise of all. They didn't get it, did they? They're asking among themselves, what does he mean? You know, a little while and we won't see him. A little while we'll see him because he's going here. They were confused. They didn't get it. Um, But the Lord knew that they would get it later. They would get it later, and that it would indeed be a source of immense comfort to them. And we have to admit, when we look at this statement, if you were hearing it for the first time, without the advantage of what we have from hindsight, this would be a very perplexing statement. It's confusing, even a little bit confusing with the advantage of hindsight. Some of you might think you know what it says, but by the time I finish explaining it, you'll realize you really didn't know what it said. So let's, we're going we're gonna to look at it carefully. He said that in a lot, little while they would not see him. That part's pretty easy. But he goes on to say that also in another little while they would see him. And why would they see him? Because he would go. Ooh, hmm. That's a little confusing, isn't it? <laughs> Not going to see him, uh, but then they'll see him because he's going. And that, even, in, even from a post-resurrection advantage, that has puzzled some people. So let's look, first of all, at the first easy phrase where he says, A little while, and ye shall not see me. Now, what you don't see, unfortunately, is that there are two different words used for see in this uh, verse. What verse is it? Mm. 17. Okay, there's two different words for C. The 16? It is. It's 16. It's 16. All right. In, in the first where it says, A little one, you shall not see me. That Greek word for C is theoreo. It looks like the Oreo. How many of you like Oreos? <laughs> yes. Okay. It looks like the Oreo. It's Theorio. And if you write that down, you could see that it's where we get our English word for theater. 
It means to be a spectator. So essentially he's saying in a little while they would no longer be spectators of him. They would no longer see him. It's just the way we think of see. They would no longer physically see him. Why? He would pass out of their out of their sight. That's why. He would pass out of their sights. Sight. Was that prediction fulfilled? Yes, it was fulfilled. It, in fact, it's going to be fulfilled in just a matter of hours because he's going to be arrested and taken from them and then he would be crucified and tucked away in a tomb. They would no longer see him physically. Um, but then he goes on, and if he ended there, that would really be sad, wouldn't it? In a little while, you won't see me anymore. If he ended there, that would be tragic. But he didn't end there. He goes on and he says, And in another little while, ye shall see me. And immediately, most of you are thinking, Yes, that did happen. We know what that means. In another little while, they did see him. On the third day, he rose from the dead, and they saw him with their own eyes. And then for the next 40 days, they saw him numerous times in his post-resurrection body. That's true. But that is not the primary meaning of the Lord's words here. And there are two reasons that we know this. Number one is because the Greek word used for see in this second phrase of verse 16 is different from the word see used in the first phrase of verse 16. He said, a little while and ye shall not physically theoreo see me. And again a little while, and ye shall orao see me. You shall orao see me, which does not mean physically see. It means see with eyes of spiritual understanding. It basically means to comprehend, orao. It's a different Greek word, and I wish that there was some way that the English could show us these differences. So what the Lord really is saying, when we rightly understand verse 16, we discover he's saying, in a little while, you men will no longer physically see me. But then in another little while, you will comprehend me with eyes of spiritual understanding. They would see him with new eyes. Like when we say, oh, I see. When we're saying like, oh, I get it. They would understand who he really was. They would have a much deeper comprehension of his person. And what would make that difference? Well, here is where the second reason we know he was not primarily speaking of his post-resurrection appearances comes in. He said that they would see him with spiritual comprehension. Why? Because he would go to his father. Oh, well, he didn't go to his father until after 40 days of his post-resurrection appearances, did he? So he's not speaking of when they would see him. That's a secondary meaning. But the primary meaning is that they would really see him when? After he went to his father. When did their spiritual comprehension really, really begin to grow? The beginning of their new comprehension of Christ began with his resurrection, of course. But when did it really, the enlargement of that comprehension take place? Right. After he had departed ten days later and the Holy Spirit came to indwell them and enlighten them. 
And then we hear Peter's sermon, and then they really understand, oh, he was the Holy One, the Just One, the Prince of Life, and they really understood his person. So that might be different than what you had originally thought that that passage meant. Now, of course, being omniscient, the Lord knew that his men were confused, and they were desirous to ask him what his statement meant, But they didn't ask him. I don't know why they didn't ask him, but they didn't. I guess they're just getting afraid to find out any more news. So they didn't ask him. And so he asked them a question, which revealed to them his knowledge of what was on their minds. Now, obviously, he must have been ahead of them at this time or behind them or wherever, but they were separated from him and they're whispering among themselves. So they knew he didn't hear what they were saying. But when he comes out with his question to them, it's like they, oh, he knows everything. He knew what we were talking about. He asked them this question. He says, do you ask one another what I mean when I say, I said a little while and you shall not see me, and again a little while and you shall see me? Implied in that is, are you asking among yourselves what I meant when none of you understands? You're asking each other, you're all ignorant, but you're asking each other instead of coming to me. (laughs) Instead of coming directly to me for the answer. What the disciples were doing when they inquired among themselves about the Lord's words is sadly very typical of what men, women, yet do today. When they pool their ignorance. Isn't that what a lot of people do when it comes to the scripture? They pool their ignorance. Well, what do you think he means? I don't know, what do you think? Well, this is my opinion. Well, you know, we don't care about your opinions. What does the word? They were pooling their ignorance instead of going directly to the source, the word of God, Jesus Christ themselves. They were counseling among themselves for answers instead of going directly to the word of God. And as we see, this unfortunately does happen, often happens with even believers. Well, when we consider the next verses, which are verses 20 to 22, which contain the Lord's patient and gentle response to his men's perplexity, we find that he does not here try to deal with them theologically as God. Instead, what he does is he deals with them in loving comfort as a parent, just as you would with a child who wasn't getting it. You wouldn't come down with them on them with all these uh, superior reasons, theological or whatever the situation might entail, some deep, deep explanation of things. He doesn't do that. Instead, he does what we would do and just tries to comfort them, soothing them. He knows at this juncture he's not, he's not as concerned with their ignorance as he is with their sorrow. Why? Well, because he knows that first in three days, and then in 40 days, and then in 10 more days, all of their ignorance is going to be taken care of. What he's concerned right now as a loving parent, he's concerned with their heart troubles. And so he wants to try to soothe their present sorrows. And so he speaks to his heartbroken men by saying to them, verily, verily, we know whenever the Lord says verily, verily, he's telling them, really listen now. Amen, amen, of a truth, of a truth, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament. In other words, he starts out kind of negative. You think you have sorrow now, just wait. It's going to get really worse. You're going to be weeping and lamenting. 
But the world will be doing what? The world will be rejoicing. And ye shall be sorrowful. But, but, aren't you glad there's that B-U-T there? But, (laughs) but your sorrow shall be turned to joy. In that one verse, (coughs) he uh, makes three predictions. First of all, he says that the deep sorrow, he predicts the deep sorrow and tears of the disciples. Now, did that take place? Did they weep and lament? Where did it begin? Well, first of all, with Peter. He, he, Peter just, you know, his heart was broken. He, he went out and he wept bitterly in deep repentance over the weakness of his flesh in having done exactly what the Lord had predicted, denying the Lord three times. And then, of course, there was the mourning sorrow of all the disciples when they saw the Lord crucified, taken from them and, and crucified, and, and dead and buried. They all mourned and wept, it tells us in Mark sixteen ten. So that prediction was fulfilled. Second prediction he made in verse 20 was this prediction of the world's joy at his death. Um, was that fulfilled? Sure was. Yeah, the world thought that his death proved that he was not the son of God. Of course, they were wrong, but that's what they thought. And the prince of this world, Satan, and all of his followers, whether human or demonic, they were very, very pleased and happy to have finally disposed of Jesus of Nazareth, or so they thought. So that second prediction was also fulfilled. Third prediction was that the sorrow, the mourning, the lamenting, of the disciples would be turned to joy. Was that fulfilled? Yes, absolutely, positively. And no man could ever take that joy from them. So when we carefully consider verse 20, we find that the Lord was actually saying here that the very same event that would cause sorrow would be the event that would also cause joy. What was that event? What caused their deep sorrow? His death. His death, his crucifixion. That same event, his death, would be the event that would cause joy. And I got to thinking, that's true with us, you know. When we die, that's a very sad thing. I mean, we all think it is, right? Sad. When I die, I'm separated from all my loved ones, my children, my grandchildren, you know. But that same death on the other side, in an instant, is the greatest joy that I will ever have. To be absent from the body, present with the Lord, same thing. Sorrow turned to joy. And no looking back either. I probably, on the other side, will not want to come back. Okay, kids, you can grieve over me. (laughs) It's just going to be a little while anyway. We'll all be together. As long as you know the Lord, right? So he's telling them that the same event, his death, would also cause the sorrow, would cause cause their joy, bring their joy. So the great spiritual principle of this statement is that the Lord brings joy into our lives, not by substitution, but by transformation. Did you get that? He brings joy into our lives, not by way of substitution, but by way of transformation. He did not remove the event that was going to cause his men immense sorrow and grief and weeping, that event being his death. Which easily he could have done, couldn't he? Because he laid his life down of his own free will, of his own accord. He gave his life. He could have removed that sorrow from them by not dying, not going to the cross, not letting them arrest him. 
He could have substituted that death for something else, like starting up a revolt against Rome. And that would have taken away the tears from his men, right? For a little while, for a little while. But guess what? They would still be dead in their sins and trespasses. So he didn't substitute the thing that brought them sorrow for something else. He transformed the thing that brought them sorrow into something that would bring them great joy. He transformed his death into a situation that would bring them such exceeding great joy that nothing, absolutely nothing, could ever, ever take that joy from them. It's called irrepressible joy. And they had that joy. I mean, once they knew who the Lord was and they saw him in his resurrected body and they understood his person with the indwelling of the Spirit, nothing could ever take that joy from them. Nothing. Even when they were martyred, you know that they had joy because they knew soon they would be seeing him again. Irrepressible joy. Remember that when you're having a pity party, when you're having a bad day, you know what awaits you in heaven? Joy that no man will ever, ever take away. Joy that won't be a roller coaster joy either. One day you have it, next day you don't. It'll be always up there. He would transform his death into resurrection and victory over Satan and victory over the grave and death. In other words, their sorrow was not to be replaced with joy. Their sorrow was actually going to be transformed into joy. It was going to be altered into joy. If a mother, think about this, a mother or nowadays I like to use grandmother. If a grandmother... Uh, ran out and bought her dear little grandchild a new toy every time that rotten little kid broke a toy. (laughs) Oh, Grandma, look, I just broke the wheel off the fire truck. Or, Grandma, look, I broke the head off my doll, and Grandma ran out and bought a new fire truck or a new doll. You know what she would be doing? She would be teaching that child to grow up expecting his problems to always be solved by way of substitution. Hmm, that's not good, because the result would be the danger of this idea carrying over into his adulthood. If he was not happy with his wife, hmm, might substitute her with another new modern version, younger version. If he wasn't happy with his job, replace it with another job. If he wasn't happy with his home, it's not big enough, you know, it's a car. It's not fast enough. Uh, You know, just go out and get another home, another car. Same thing people do sometimes with churches. You know, sometimes there's good reasons. But then I have known people who are so critical that they find something wrong in every church and they're known as church hoppers. You know, they just substitute one for another. The result is a spoiled adult who's not able to cope with reality because the way of substitution for problem-solving is the way of immaturity. It's the way of immaturity. On the other hand, solving problems by way of transformation, taking lemons and turning them into lemonade, the way of solving problems by transformation is the way of faith and the way of of maturity. It's the ability to take something bad or take something sad 
or take something negative and transform it into something good and joyful. Isn't that God's specialty? And some of the people in the Bible learned that lesson. Look at Joseph. Oh, talk about having a lot of lemons in his life. But he understood the sovereignty of God. And he, he turned every bad situation into a good one. And that's what the Lord wants his children to be able to do. Some of you have lost a spouse. That's a sad, sad situation, isn't it? But you can use it for good, right, Catherine? Because now you have time to spend with your Lord and Savior that otherwise you wouldn't have. Now you have freedom to minister to other people. You have more time in your life. Yes, it's a sad situation, but you can transform it into lemonade. That's what the Lord wants us to do. We are not going to mature spiritually or socially or emotionally or even mentally by continually replacing our broken toys and broken relationships with something else or someone else. We mature when we learn how to transform sad situations into joyful situations. Well, the Lord gave us an example of this, and I couldn't think of a better one than what he gave. This is a perfect illustration of this principle of transformation. In verse 21, when he spoke of childbirth, the same infant who caused his mother so much pain during her labor is the very same baby who brings her so much joy when she's holding him in her arms after the delivery, right? Absolutely. In childbirth, you see, God did not devise a plan whereby he substituted something else to relieve the mother's pain. He determined to use what was already there, the very thing causing the pain. He used that thing, the baby, not a thing, (laughs) to transform her pain into gain. You know, very soon after the baby is born, you don't really forget the labor, do you? I mean, you know, but it doesn't matter. You, You say to yourself, it was worth it all. Now that you have this precious treasure in your arms that you can care for and and nourish and love on and worry about for the rest of your lives. (laughs) No, not worry. Be concerned about And furthermore, because the laboring mother knows what's coming, you know, for the joy set before her, right, so to speak, even during her labor, she can have joy. You all know that. Even in your labor pains, you have a joy that no one can take from you because you do know it's going to be worth it all. You do know that soon you're going to have that baby in your arms. And this is what the Lord tried to tell his men when he told them ahead of time what was going to happen. He would die. He'd been telling them this a long time. He was going to die. But what did he always say after that? Listen, guys, and they never heard this. I don't know why they didn't hear it. It It's just too good to be true. They just didn't get it. He says, I'm going to die, but on the third day, I'll rise again. That's what we just celebrated last week. I'm going to rise. He was going away, he told them. And yes, they couldn't follow him yet, but they would one day. In fact, he would come and get them. They wouldn't have to worry about how to get there. He'd come and escort them to where he was. And although they would not physically see him, he tells them they would indeed see him. 
They would see him with heart eyes in a deeper, more profound way than they ever, ever could have imagined. Just as the birth of a child swallows up all the agony of the delivery process, so the Lord's appearance to his men after his crucifixion and burial swallowed up all the disciples' pre-resurrection agony, didn't it? Every tear was wiped away once they saw him and realized it wasn't a ghost. It wasn't an apparition. It was too good to be true. Can you imagine when they saw him? The flood, the joy that must have flooded their souls. It was, the Bible does say they just thought it was too good to be true. And we, it is. It's just too good to be true. But guess what? It is true. He is resurrected from the dead. Amen. So their, their sorrow was turned to joy. Their three days of desperation and depression and anguish were swallowed up completely, instantly. Just like when we're going to be raptured. <laughs> All the sorrows here on earth are going to instantly be swallowed up when they beheld him face to face in his resurrection glory. There was nothing the world could ever do to them after that that would take their joy from them. Even when they're in prison, in stocks, what are they doing? Praising the Lord and singing. Even when they're crucified upside down or their heads chopped off, all the different awful ways they were martyred, no one could take their joy from them. The Lord had turned the curse of hanging on a tree into the fantastic salvation blessings available freely for all men. So Jesus attempted to soothe his men of their sadness in the best possible way. First, by telling them that his departure would only be temporary. And second, by telling them that the same event that would make them weep and lament would cause them to rejoice in eternal joyful gain. Now in verse 22... We see that he gives really a brief summary of everything he had been saying in verses 16 to 21. Uh, 22 is a summary. He says, and ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Remember that, ladies. The principle of transformation is what we long for at the Lord's return, isn't it? which I believe is getting closer every day. That's true. No doubt about it. It is getting closer every day. But I believe it's just around the corner. With everything we see going on in the world today, it's just almost here. In the, from the Lord's perspective, isn't it just a little while? We're, we're patiently right now. We're suffering all the, the heartaches, all the, the travails, the, the labor pains of life, the, the misunderstanding, you know, as being Christians. It is getting worse and worse. But, you know, and, and, and we're, we're being rejected by the world. But all of this, we're patiently suffering because we know we can have that joy and anticipation. We know of his coming when all the sorrow of living in this world is going to be swallowed up. And guess what else we can anticipate with great joy? Even the redemption of our bodies. Oh, I can't wait to be 30 again. <laughs> I have this idea that in heaven, the perfect age will be like 30. And yeah, and you'll stay there. You won't get old and no more arthritis in my neck and in my toes. And those, I know some of you, that's minor compared to the aches and pains that we can have in this life. But Romans 8.23 says that we groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And creation itself, we know this, we see this going on in the world. Creation itself suffers birth pangs. Because poor earth had to suffer because of man's fall. Earth also got cursed. 
We live on a cursed earth. Don't we see the birth pangs with earthquakes and tsunamis and tornadoes and hurricanes and floods and fires and all the things? And they seem to be getting more frequent, just like labor pains, like the Lord said, more frequent, more close together and more intense, which is another sign that he's soon going to be here. But from God's perspective outside of time, it's just going to be a little while. And the entire situation as we know it today is going to be wondrously, beautifully transformed. This earth is a beautiful place. Even in spite of all the birth pangs, it suffers. And it is suffering. The earth is suffering too, you know, when the tectonic plates are moving and earthquakes and all that. But can you imagine how beautiful this earth is going to be in the millennial kingdom? It'll go back to its pre-Adamic curse perfection. The way God originally made it, it would just be awesome, breathtaking. I think all the flowers are going to be blooming at the same time, and it'll just... All the time, yes. (laughs) She keeps saying all the time. We'll be 30 all the time. The flowers will be blooming all the time. It'll just be breathtaking. And we will be joyful all the time, yes. How many of you know what Psalm 30, verse 5 says? Anybody? You, You will when I say it. Weeping, yes, weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. I love that verse. So Jesus comforted his men by telling them of transformed joy that would come out of pain. And next, now in verses 23 to 28, I've got to really speed up here. He spoke to them of the transcendent joy that they could experience in their new prayer lives. So let's look at verses 23 to 28. Jesus answered and said unto them, Oops, wrong verse. (laughs) 23. Um, And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto ye have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in proverbs or parables. But the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father at that day. Notice how many times he says, at that day. Ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. We'll have to talk about that because that's confusing. Verse 27, for the Father himself loveth you because ye have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. Now, verse 28 is a great summary statement of his whole life. He says, I came forth from the Father, that's his incarnation, and am come into the world, that's his uh, mission of salvation, came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. Again, I leave the world, that speaks of his resurrection, and go to the Father, that speaks of his ascension. That's a great summary statement. All right, let's stop right there. In the Lord's statement, go back to verse 23, where he says, In that day ye shall ask me nothing. Here again, we have that the Lord used two different words for the word ask. We only see the English word ask, but in verse 23, when he says, Ye shall ask me nothing, the word is erotao. The word refers to asking a question in order to get information, not asking as in a prayer request. So he's saying in that day, you won't ask me any more questions for information. He was seemingly telling his men 
that although they had asked him many questions in the past and still had many more questions that they desired to ask him but didn't, he says, in that day, what was that day? It would be the day of Pentecost. In that day, when he would send the Spirit in his place, they would no longer need to ask him, Jesus, any more questions for information. Why? Because all the truths that he had been giving to them in embryo form, many of which were so mysterious and confusing to them, all those things would be revealed to them by their resident teacher, the Spirit of Truth. And then contrasting, and I know if you're not getting this, you have your notes and you can go over it and meditate on it, but I got it for time, I got to get this all in. And co- contrasting the coming time of the new age of the Spirit's indwelling presence when believers would no longer need to ask for the sake of information anything from the Son, what does the Lord do? He goes on to say that they should ask, they won't need to ask Him anything more for information, but they should ask the Father in prayer for everything. And when he says that you should ask the Father, when he says, I say unto you whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. The word for ask is a different Greek word. It's not the word erotao used in that first phrase where it was to ask for information. You're not going to ask the Father for any information. We don't need any more information from the Father, do we? If somebody tells you they have a new word from, the, from God, a new revelation... That's a red flag, ladies. He has given us all the revelation we need for here and now. We don't need to ask the Father for any more information. The word he uses when we ask the Father is the word eteo, which speaks of a prayer petition. A prayer petition. In the day of the Holy Spirit, the day we're living in, the day when Christ is absent from earth, rather than asking Christ questions, as the disciples constantly did while he was with them. Believers, instead, are to petition in prayer the Father. And we don't petition the Father to gain further information, further revelation than what he has given to us. Rather, we ask in humble petition to our superior for those things that we know are in the will of Christ line up with Christ's name. We could pray, one thing we could pray for and we should pray for is further illumination of what has already been divinely revealed by God. Now that is the proper way. You know, you don't ask for a, a different, a new word from the Lord. His scripture is complete. But you can ask for revelation, illumination of what he has already revealed And what you know is in accordance with Christ's name. He wants us to grow in our spiritual understanding. Praying in Christ's name, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we've done this before, but praying in Christ's name is essentially saying, Father, I want this because I know Christ would want it. Coming to God in Jesus' name would be something else that would fill the disciples' souls with joy. It would be a new experience. That's what he says in verse 24. Hitherto ye have asked nothing in my name. Now he's not reprimanding his men there for a failure in their prayer lives. Rather, he is telling them that again, he's telling them of one of the changes that would take place because of his departure to his father. Before his resurrection, 
before his ascension, it was impossible for believers to pray in the name of Jesus. Do you think John or Peter or James or any one of them ever went to Jesus and said, oh, I'd like to make this petition. Could I sit on your right hand and your left hand when you come into the kingdom and I'm asking in Jesus' name? They never prayed to him like that, did they? Of course not. You see, all that was, before his resurrection and ascension, nobody prayed in Jesus' name. Why? Because it awaited, prayers like that had to await for, wait for his finished work and his acceptance of that work by God the Father. However, as a consequence of the Lord's exaltation and the Spirit's indwelling presence, Believers now can plead before the Father in Christ's name. In fact, that's what we're supposed to do. Take our petitions to the Father and we pray them in Christ's name, which means that we ask by virtue of our union with Christ. So although the disciples had never before asked the Father for anything in Christ's name, what Jesus is doing here at the end of his final discourse is encouraging them to ask the Father, for anything and everything, as long as it was in accordance with his nature, his name, his will, so that they would receive. And in receiving the answers to their prayer requests, what would happen? They would have joy. Do you want full joy in your life? Full joy, remaining joy? We all do, don't we? You're crazy if you don't. Everybody wants joy. So how do we get it? Well, Jesus tells us, ask. You know why we don't have a lot of joy in our lives sometimes? Because we're not asking. You have not because you ask not. He says, ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. While the Lord had been with his men, he had met all of their needs. He had protected them and cared for them. But now that he was leaving, they needed to hear that the Father, who loved them as much as he did, would hear and answer their prayers and meet their needs. And this is why four times in his last discourse, Jesus spoke about prayer. Four times. It's important. Very important. Answered prayer brings joy. Do you know that? Are we praying enough? No, I think we're all convicted in that area. None of us probably prays enough. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 gives us a command. You know what that command is? Rejoice evermore. Rejoice evermore evermore. Oh, even when I'm hurting, even when I can't think straight because I'm in pain, even when everything in life is going rotten, I'm to rejoice evermore. How is that possible, Lord? Well, he gives us the answer. Paul did, inspired by the Spirit. In the very next verse, you know what it says? After it says rejoice evermore, what's it say? Pray without ceasing. Exactly. Exactly. That's the answer. How can I rejoice ever more? Well, I need to be praying constantly. Full joy comes when we're on our knees as we're communing, communing with sovereign God, understanding that everything in life is under his sovereign orchestration, and then watching in wonder as we pray for, for things that we know are in accordance with his will, with Christ's glory, and watch him answer those prayers, and we can have Joy that no man can take from us. Full joy. So we see our prayers answered. Well, in verse 25 to 28, we find these final words, or these words of Jesus to his men. He says, these things 
I have spoken to you in Proverbs. You see, he knew that much of what he said in this last discourse was like speaking in a parable, a proverb, that they weren't getting it. But he says, the time will come when I will no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I will show you plainly of the Father. At that day you shall ask in my name. And here's, here's a verse we have to look at. I mean, um, a phrase. And I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loveth you because ye have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I, um, I came forth from the Father and come into the world. Again, I live the world and go to the Father. Here he's telling them of the new situation that they would experience because of his departure to his Father, the coming of the Holy Spirit. There would come a time when all of his mysterious sayings, all of his little figures of speech and allegories would no longer be necessary. The Spirit would make these things clear to them. And one brand new thing that he says is found at the end of verse 26, and I do want to talk about this, when he said he would not be the believer's intervening prayer mediator. Now hang with me as I explain this. You'll get it when I'm finished. He said, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. He's saying, I'm not, I don't tell you that I will pray to the Father for you. If Christ You see, if Christ was to serve as our prayer mediator to God, if we had to pray to Christ and then he took our prayer requests and brought them before the Father, if Christ was our prayer mediator, would not that indicate that there was yet a distance between the believer and God? If we prayed to Jesus and he somehow had to persuade God to answer our prayers... It would definitely determine that there, or demonstrate that there was still a distance between us and God. And isn't that why Jesus came here and died for us? Is so that he would remove that distance between us and God? The truth is, you see, that God the Father is both eager and anxious to answer the prayers of those he loves. And why does he love believers? Because we love his son. He loves us because we love his son and believe that his son is divine. That's what he means when he says, For the Father himself loveth you because ye have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. You believe I'm divine. You, came, you believe I came forth from God. Because believers love Jesus Christ and believe his equality with God, We are given the privilege of entering boldly ourselves into the very throne room of God with our prayer petitions prayed in Christ's name, aren't we? Don't we have access to the throne of God? We don't have to go through a prayer mediator. We don't have to go through even Jesus, the Son of God, much less Mary or some saint. We have the great privilege of going directly to God with our prayer requests, our petitions. We do not need a prayer mediator. But please make sure you understand that that does not negate the Lord's high priestly ministry, which involves his own prayers to God for us. You see the difference? He's not taking our prayers and presenting them as our mediator to God. His high priestly ministry is his own prayers prayed for us. That's what he's going to do in John 17, pray for us to his father. 
But um, that doesn't, this doesn't negate his high priestly ministry, nor does it negate his advocacy ministry, because he is still our defense attorney. He is our advocate for the defense when Satan is constantly today, you know, going back and forth, bringing before God uh, accusations against us for our human weaknesses and shortcomings. He is our advocate for the defense. And every time Satan comes before him and says, well, you know what Catherine did yesterday? What does Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. You cannot accuse her of anything because she's covered in my blood. So that doesn't negate either one of those things. But we can take our prayer requests directly to God himself without a prayer mediator. Well, I've already told you about the summary of verse 28. So uh, let's move on. When, when, uh, after the Lord made that fourfold statement, summary statement about his coming and his going from and to the Father there in verse 28, that seemed <clears throat> to jolt his disciples out of their spiritual stupor because they immediately reacted with the words that we find in verses 29 and 30, which let me read right now. 29 and 30, his, his, his disciples said unto him, <clears throat> Lo! It's like, okay, now we get it. <laughs> Lo, now speakest thou plainly and speakest no proverb. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. In, in English, let me, um, let me uh, trans, uh, or put it in modern paraphrase. This is what they would be saying. Now you're speaking clearly, Lord. Now we get it. You're not speaking in mysterious proverbs anymore. We know that you do indeed know everything. And they're thinking of the fact that he knew what they had wanted to ask him earlier. And so they say, now we know you, don't, you know everything. And so we won't have to ask you questions anymore because you're going to know what we, need, what we want to ask you ahead of time. So we're not going to have to ask any more questions of you. Because you know the questions before they're asked. So, because of that, we believe that you did come forth from God. Well, that sounds sort of good in a way. And some commentators say, ah, this is great, the disciples got it. But they didn't. This was not, they had it wrong here. Their, their principal thinking. They thought that because he knew their unasked questions about his little while statement in verse 19, and because he had said, in that day, you shall ask me nothing, that they literally would never have to ask him any more questions. That's the way they took it, that he would anticipate their every question and their every need. In other words, in his omniscience, he would know and anticipate all things. But that's not what he was speaking about. He was speaking of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would enlighten them so they would no longer need to ask any more questions because they would be given the answers by the Holy Spirit. And I also want us to notice this, that even though Jesus said that he came forth from the Father and that he was leaving to go back to the Father, he said both of those things in verse 28, if you look. Yet the declaration of faith from his men, only stated that they believed he came forth from God. He had told them that he came from God and he was going back to God. But when they say, oh, now we get it, we believe you came forth from God, that's the only thing they say in their declaration. And, you know, even a Pharisee named Nicodemus 
way back in John chapter 3 had made that declaration when he said, I know that thou art a teacher. Come from where? Come from God. (laughs) So really their statement of faith here in verse 30 went no further than a confession that he was the promised Messiah. Yes, we do believe you came from God and you are the Messiah that we've waited for. That's why you see in verse 31, Jesus asks them the question, do ye now believe? And he asks it like that. Do ye now believe? You see, he knew that even their faith in him as a Messiah was about to be severely tested and shaken to its very foundations. Everything that they were going to witness in the next 24 hours would cause them to be stumbled, to be offended to the point that they would do what? Scatter from him. And he says that in verse 32. He says, uh, after he asked the question, do ye now believe? In verse 32, he says, behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come. Probably going to be arrested within the next hour. That ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. <clears throat> Their faith was genuine, but it was not nearly as strong as they thought it was. He was warning them, as he had done previously when they were seated with him around the the Passover table in the upper room, of the danger of their overconfidence. Every one of them, he says, would scatter from him. However, he wouldn't be alone. Who would be with him? His father, he says, would be with him. Yes, the disciples' faith would be tested. And their faith would seem to fail, wouldn't it? Would seem to fail. And it would appear to them that everything that they had believed in, everything that they had hoped for, had come to nothing. But it was not to be the end of everything. Despite their failures and their overwhelming sorrows and all of their confusion, and despite the world's hatred, they would have joy and they would have victory, and they would know true, lasting peace. John 16, 33, which concludes the Lord's last message to his men before his death, tells them that in the end, they would not only experience transformed joy and transcendent joy, but guess what else? Triumphant joy because they would experience peace and victory in him. He says, look at verse 33, these things, and what is he speaking of when he says these things? Everything he said in the farewell discourse, beginning all the way back in the introduction in John 13, 31, he says, these things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have what? Peace. How's the only way to have peace in this unpeaceful world? The only way is to have peace in Christ. He says, I've spoken all these things that in me ye might have peace. Now he admits, in the world ye shall have tribulation. He doesn't promise us a rose garden. He says, yes, you will have tribulation. You know what that word is? Labor pains, travail. It will be like you're going through labor pains living in this world. But he doesn't end there. He goes on and says, Be of good cheer. Remind yourself of that every morning when you wake up. Be of good cheer, Catherine. 
No matter what this day brings, you can be of good cheer. Why? Because Christ has overcome the world. And if you are a believer in Christ, in him, you too will overcome this world. We actually have already overcome it because he's already overcome it. He won the victory at the cross and at the tomb. John 16.33 is not only the summary of the farewell discourse, it is also its climax. The end and the scope of everything that Jesus Christ said in this last pre-crucifixion message was to draw us to himself as the only source of comfort. People can help you in your sorrows and in your travails a little bit, but who is your ultimate source of comfort? It's Jesus Christ and him alone, really. He didn't say that we wouldn't have troubles in this world, nor did he promise us any freedom from heartaches and sorrows while we're here in our physical bodies. But he did bid us to take comfort in the fact that he has fought our battles and he has won the victory for us. So we can be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. All of the curses, all of the heartaches, all the troubles, all the tears, all the lamenting, all the injustices, the tragedies, the hatred, the crime, the persecution, and death itself have been overcome by Jesus Christ and will one day be put away forever. You know, we are happy today because we have finally seen some justice take place in the death of an evil man, right? And we're rejoicing. But can you imagine what our rejoicing will be like one day when all of the injustices of this world will be ended, taken care of? When the King of kings and Lord of lords comes, he comes to reign as judge and in righteous judgment for a thousand years and then takes us into the eternal state? Can you imagine the joy that will flood our souls at that day? I long for that day when justice will finally be served. And that, my dear friends, that is real cause for joy that no man can ever take from those of us who believe in the word of God. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for the joy that is set before us, knowing that one day all sorrow will be ended. Everything will be made right. Jesus Christ, the King of Righteousness, the Prince of Peace, Lord of Lords, Creator, Redeemer, the the best thing that ever, ever could happen to any of us. He will come and rule over this world and all things will be made right. Beauty will return. Peace unending will reign. Joy will fill our hearts and no man forever can take that from us. Thank you for the promise that even though weeping may endure for the night, joy does come in the morning. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray these things because we know that they're in accordance with your will. Amen.